Today, our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend, for justice will amend America. Welcome to another edition of Outside the Box. I'm Jeff Nyquist, your host, and today my very special guest is Claire Berlinski. She's a journalist and author of a new biography on Margaret Thatcher. She defends Thatcher's vision and policies in There Is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. An outspoken defender and admirer of Thatcher, Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Oxford International Review, Asia Times, Weekly Standard, National Review, and Policy Review. She is also the author of two novels, The Menace in Europe, Why the Continent's Crisis is America's Too. She's uh, on the phone with us all the way from distant Turkey. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I should also mention you've been on the show twice before, and we've very much enjoyed having you. Uh, it's it's particularly interesting now that we're on the eve of the U.S. presidential election uh, to talk about Margaret Thatcher, because uh, to the surprise of many in the United States, conservatism seems to have faded even from the Republican side. It seems like Republicans in the United States cannot enunciate the values of Reagan, and you bring up the values of Thatcher. Reagan and Thatcher worked very closely. I might might just ask, were there any differences between Reagan and Thatcher's conservatism? Were there any differences between Reagan and Thatcher? Yes, of course there were differences between Reagan and Thatcher. I would say there were more differences of temperament than philosophy. I think in terms of basic political philosophy, they were really soulmates, kindred spirits. In terms of temperament, everyone who knew them both pointed out what different styles they had politically. Reagan was a CEO but she was known for her extraordinary attention to detail. She was known for being a master of policy, of statistics. Reagan, of course, was not known for that. He was known for being a genial figure who presided over the whole scene, whereas she was a much more of a micromanager. And, of course, his was a very different public personality. It was a relaxed, genial personality, and hers was a very harsh, very, very forbidding personality. So there's great difference in the way they presented themselves Mm -hmm. in terms of style, but in terms of political philosophy, very, very close. Now, you, um, if I can just go back to the question you started with, or the point you made, which is that there's a a very profound division within the conservative movement within the Republican Party right now. I'm sure everyone who's following the news knows about the Civil War among Republican and conservative pundits. It's interesting because there is a parallel very much um, with the conservative party In the time that Thatcher was moving up the ranks in the early 1970s, it was very much divided in much the way the conservative party is now between people who saw themselves as true believers in the fundamental principles of conservatism and people who thought that a more moderate, pragmatic compromise needed to be made. Um, And Thatcher really positioned herself as an authentic voice of conservatism, and this is how she rose to power. And so there's a wonderful anecdote, which I discuss in the book. 
before she became prime minister, but after she had been elected leader of the Conservative Party, in office, which was in opposition, she attended a conference of conservatives at which um, someone was prattling on about how conservatives now, you know, so the battle had been had been lost and conservatives needed to take a pragmatic middle path. And Thatcher was inflamed. She stood up and she reached into her handbag and she pulled out a copy of Hayek's Constitution of Liberty, which she had in her handbag, and she slammed it on the table and she said, no, this is what we believe. I thought that was a, was a wonderful story and very interesting, very, very telling. Now, the question, of course, there's, there's a civil war in American conservatism now. It's hard to say which side is authentically embracing conservatism, or at least both sides are claiming to have inherited the mantle of true conservatism. So obviously there's a lot of debate about what conservatism is, Yeah, which is interesting. It is, and, and the thing that bothers me is that when I hear politicians, even conservative pundits writing or speaking, I begin to wonder if they haven't forgotten what it is that they believe or what Reagan or Thatcher were doing saying, hey, these principles, this coherent worldview is out there. We need to stick by it. We can't just go off the reservation and think each individually what we want. Uh, because, and this is the other thing, I think there's been some intellectual decay. Intellectual decay in what sense? And what would you consider the the emblematic sign of intellectual decay. Uh, the emblematic sign is is the, this uh, economic crisis has been shocking to me because you would think that the most fundamental thing were, was knowledge of economics, oh, yeah. that, that a conservative has to know that there are certain things you do not do in an economic crisis, and there's certain knowledge you have about why the crisis was created, you know, what caused it, that is, in this case, credit inflation and the creation of paper and, and, and the government's role in that uh, and, and what the government has to do in order to fight it. And It's been shocking, hasn't it, to hear all four candidates for presidency and the vice presidency speak as if they haven't even taken Economics 101. Yes. Um, and you, you wonder whether this is because they are trying to say what they think makes them sound electable or whether the ignorance is really as profound as their statements would suggest. And if so, we're, we're in trouble. It's frightening. Yeah, it is frightening. And I suspect, and I, I, I had dinner with a, a, a Washington guy the other night, and I asked him about this. And he said, there's a lot of smart people in Washington, but they're so busy. Everybody's so busy, you know, doing the politics thing that they don't have time to read. They don't necessarily have time to think. And perhaps... This busyness that we have in our society, in America, and, and you, you, Claire, you're in Turkey, you've been in Europe, it's a different pace of life, it's a different approach to, to doing tasks. But in Washington and, and New York both, everything is hurry, hurry, faster and faster, busier and busier. And, and I have to believe that takes its toll, that that is the, is the root cause of a kind of intellectual degeneration among our elites. Imagine, though, that both presidential candidates are surrounded by professional economists who, however busy they are, would be at least able to give them basic talking points that would steer them away from saying things that are just manifestly insane. Mm -hmm. And what I don't quite understand, I can't imagine that either McCain or Obama deeply believes that what caused this crisis was greed on Wall Street. I mean, that, that, that's really their basic, deep interpretation of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have to imagine they're saying this because they think it's a, a powerful message electorally. 
But how are they going to go beyond that to explain what's then going to need to be done? I, I kept feeling absolutely stunned. I'm not the first person, person to observe this, of course, but during the debates when the basic mathematics just wasn't there, when yeah. the, they were asked over and over again, well, what are you going to do about a $600 billion shortfall or $700 billion shortfall in the budget? How are you going to make up for that? And McCain, for example, would say, well, we're going to cut $18 billion worth of pork. And do they really think the American people are that stupid? Yeah, especially when what we're talking about is trillions in losses. Yeah, yeah. The government cannot possibly fill the breach when you're talking about, you know, unwinding, you know, 400 trillion in derivatives and it impacting the banks. And we're talking about sums that are, you know, orders of magnitude off when you're talking about budgeting. 700 billion out of the economy are not usable for the immediate future, and we're going to make up for it by cutting 18 billion dollars worth of pork. It doesn't, yeah, it's, it's tiny. Can they really imagine that no one's noticing that that's just not adding up? No, and you know the other thing, and this this brings us right back to Thatcher's philosophy is the philosophy of smaller government and and both of these candidates both we're not surprised to hear from the democrat side but from the republican side we're very surprised to hear it said that government has solutions for this economic crisis i mean i just saw a little clip from herbert hoover from like 1930 and it's like we have survived this financial crisis we've found the solution you know this is herbert hoover president hoover talking and we know of course retrospectively that he was dead wrong that his solutions completely failed and and the, the politicians are it's like not only do they not know economics they don't know any history they're repeating the mistakes of hoover yeah it's you know you're you're saying something that i've thought often and wondered about. There's a feeling of amateur hour um, that politicians who you would expect to be deeply versed in in the history of past crises of this sort, of past presidential decisions, are saying things that you would, you would correct if you heard them from the mouths of your undergraduate students. Uh, and, and so I'm puzzled by this because I don't know whether it's genuine or whether this is what they believe we want to hear. And if it is what they believe we want to hear, is that true? I mean, you're in America. You can tell me better than maybe I can because I don't have my finger on the pulse. Is this really what the American people want to hear? No. You know, that's very interesting because all of the people I talk to, even Democrats, especially people who have knowledge of business, they want this to be over. They want, uh, okay, we're going to go through pain. Let's go through the pain and then get through the other side. We know we have to do this uh, because they they know that right now, Claire, in this country, when I go into my favorite restaurant, they say three more months of this and we're closing our doors. And it's more than one restaurant. My former business partner owns hotels in the southeast. He says six more months of this and he's going to lose both hotels. And they're not alone. Businessmen are saying this all over and retail is dying. Store chains are closing. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. I mean, in California, employment is rising so fast. It's gone up um, almost an entire point in the last six months. And we're headed for double-digit unemployment within the next few months. It was what it looks like. And and the Christmas season is going to be death. I mean, people are, there's not going to be a Christmas this year. People are holding on to their money like they've never held on to their money since 1930, you know. So just to, to give you the picture here. Yeah, and it's the same picture here. Of course it is. I mean, Turkey is like, it's it's 
every country connected every country. to the global economy is affected by this, and Turkey's going to be one of the first affected by it. Yeah, and, and the other thing is the president of the United States gets on television and says, you know, this sucker could go down. You know, I mean, we're, we we're facing economic collapse here. We need this bailout plan. That scares everybody. And it, it, it scares everybody. And you know, the Congress, which was listening to the people because the, the mail into Congress was so negative against the bailout that it frightened them, both Democrats and Republicans, that they didn't pass it on the first go round. And they tinkered with it and then they passed it the second time around because, you know, they kept being panicked. You know, you've got to pass it. You've got to pass it. And, uh, after they passed it, of course, and when they did a poll of Wall Street, you know, the business people, is this going to solve the problem? The majority of them said, no, this bailout isn't going to solve anything, really. This is the other thing that I found extraordinary, that I could not find a statement from any public official explaining in simple language why they thought the bailout was going to solve the problem. It doesn't have to be child language, but in simple language accessible to an ordinary American who doesn't have an advanced degree in economics, why exactly will this help? I couldn't find a statement that convinced me. Yeah, in fact, uh, a large number of economists got together and signed a letter to Congress saying, you know, we don't want this. You know, this is not good and it's not fair and it's going to cause problems. Uh, economic fundamentals. Now, if if Margaret Thatcher were in charge, well, we, we saw what Reagan did back when we had a similar economic crisis back in, um, in 1981. Uh, he held the line against inflation, and they didn't try a bailout of of the economy in the same way. Yeah, I, Thatcher did confront something very, very similar in the first years of her time in power because she was trying to beat inflation out of the economy and adhering to a very strict form of monetarism, probably targeting the wrong, the wrong monetary targets, which made it worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, in unemployment soared to previously unimaginable levels, levels that had only been reached in the Great Depression before that, and mm-hmm. inflation kept rising and rising. And She was absolutely determined that she was going to stick with the frugal, austere monetary policy that she had embarked upon um, yeah. and the budget cuts that she had embarked upon. And that was when she made her famous speech about there being no U-turn. And she was intransigent on this. She was intransigent and met with enormous, enormous public hostility because of it. But it's absolutely the case that because she held the line, because she, she didn't waver, soon afterwards Britain entered its longest uninterrupted period of post-war economic growth. Yeah, that's fantastic. With me is Claire Berlinski. We're discussing your book, There's No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. And we'll be back with Outside the Box and Jeff Nyquist after these messages. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box. And with me is Claire Berlinski. She's uh, on the phone with us from Turkey. She's the author of There Is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. And we've been really getting into this business about what Margaret Thatcher did when they had an economic crisis here, um, uh, you know, more than 25 years ago in, in Britain and in the United States and created this uh, prosperity that Britain and the United States enjoyed uh, under Reagan and Thatcher after they, they brought us out of this. And it's interesting uh, that uh, I think there's a basic understanding of the people 
that Reagan and Thatcher both had that when the economy gets out there and, and there's, there's malinvestment and there's problems and inefficiencies in the economy that you've got to let the downside play out. You have to let the recession go and, and mm-hmm. get all the bad economic stuff out so that you can then come back and have jobs that are sustainable and co- companies that are sustainable on, on the correct economic foundation that really what these depression periods or recession periods are about is about correction correction of the economy. And and you mentioned Friedrich Hayek before, and the Austrians are really good about this. The Austrians say two things. They say that uh, the economy is too complicated for one person to understand. It's the market that allows the understanding of the people coming together and allows the healing, and that actually a recession, a depression is really a period of healing, that what happens during actually a false boom is when the damage takes place. So the damage has already been done. We're trying to heal, and what a lot of these bailouts and other things do is they prevent the healing from happening, and Thatcher understood this. Am, Am I right about this? I think that is roughly right. I mean, I think one thing to appreciate is that while the free market does create prosperity better than any other system that we know of or has ever been tried, I mean, it certainly works better than a command economy, it's also a feature of free market economies that they are prone to speculative bubbles. They're not perfect. Mm-hmm. We don't have a perfect system in the free market. We have a better system than anyone, any other system we know. Right. Speculative bubbles have been part of market economy since for for as long as there have been market economies. Um, I mean, you can go back to the the tulip craze, for example, look at it. So this is not an unknown event in a market economy. And the question of how do you respond to it to get the best outcome, it's one that there's a lot of debate and subtlety in it. It's not necessarily a question of, well, just just leave everything alone and don't do anything. I mean, we have a lot of policy tools that we – we must choose among you know, in terms of fiscal policy, in terms of monetary policy, and a lot of empirical evidence about what works best and what doesn't. I think one of the points that I would make about Margaret Thatcher's approach is that, and this is something that I feel is very lacking in, in, in the contemporary scene, is that she was extremely good at communicating what she was doing to the electorate. She was extremely good at explaining why some kinds of pain were necessary and making the case that the pain in, in, in common sense language that ordinary people could understand that there was a reason for going through what you were going through and that it was the only way through. I mean, Br- Britain was really in bad shape when, when Thatcher came in there. I mean, Britain was in incredibly bad shape. I think people don't realize just how bad the condition of Britain was. I mean, Britain was was experiencing, in, in 1973, Britain was experiencing the effects of the oil price shock. Inflation reached a peak of 27%, if memory serves me right. And um, Britain was, was riven by industrial strife, work stoppages, strikes. Um, basic public services were, were very patchy. During the winter of discontent before Thatcher came to power, the strikes were so frequent that even the Soviet trade minister, think about that, the Soviet trade minister told his British counterpart, we don't want to do business with you. You're always on strike. You never deliver. People's memories of that time, they remember, for example, um, women giving giving birth in the hospital having all the power go out because of a strike. Um, Britain was not in a state of absolute decline, but it was in a state of relative decline compared to every other European country. Um, there was no widespread expectation when Thatcher came to power that she was going to be able to reverse the situation. It was seen as, as terminal, as hopeless. Britain was just seen as a country that had once been a glorious empire, but now the only, the only task fitting for government was to manage its decline gracefully. 
Hmm. And Thatcher said something which was really revolutionary. She said, "There's no, we're not in criminal decline. In fact, we can become a great trading nation again. We can become a nation which is, which is really a, a powerful economic force. But we have to get rid of the state control, the dead hand of socialism, and the, the economic philosophy by which we've been governed since the post-war era. And this was a very painful process. It was extremely painful, and it was violent. It, you know, Britain was taken virtually to the verge of civil war during the 1984 miners' strike. Um, and it involved years of, of real hardship. Um, and she probably wouldn't have made it if she hadn't been blessed with extraordinary good luck. Uh, so it was really a, a combination of circumstances that allowed her to pursue her agenda, her anti-socialist agenda, and really to reverse the trajectory of Britain's decline. Um, but one thing that she had, which I don't see, again, in any of our political leaders right now, I don't see it in Britain and I don't see it in the United States, is an ability to explain what she was doing without talking down to the electorate, without patronizing the electorate, but to explain, honestly, this is what's going on, this is why we need to do what we're doing, and it's going to take a long time, it's going to hurt, but in the end, there is something that we're working toward, and I promise you that we'll get there. That I'm not seeing. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, uh, and, of course, we haven't seen very often with the growth of the welfare state, and the, it's, it seems like there's something naturally inherent in government that they want to add more and more government. They want to have more and more controls, more and more manipulation of the market. And for, for Thatcher, I mean, this is a tremendous achievement to take a country that had moved so far towards socialism and reverse its course. Yes. I mean, we hadn't moved as far that way. I mean, Reagan wasn't able to really do much in that regard. He was able to slow down the movement in that way and, and, and in, in an important sense, discredit the socialist ideas from the, I mean, you, you couldn't get a democratic politicians to admit that they were liberals. You know, mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. the L word at one time here. But now you have, uh, Barack Obama, a guy who's very far to the left, and he's he's very good. He has a, a great technique. What he does is he shows tremendous respect for the Republican side of the aisle, and he speaks respectfully, and he says, George Bush is not a bad guy. He doesn't have ice water in his veins. He's a good man. And so he, by giving respect, Obama gets respect, and he gets respect indirectly for these ideas that he doesn't make sound like socialism. He makes them sound like reasonable policy. Yeah, and frankly, none of us have any idea what an Obama presidency is going to look like. No, we don't. He has done the the Bill Clinton thing of running toward the center, and we all know that prior to his presidential campaign, he made a lot of statements and associated with a lot of people that would suggest that the center isn't really where he's naturally at home. But this guy's so young and he's so inexperienced that we, we... it, anything could happen. He could be he could be a fabulous president, but he could also be an absolute socialist nightmare. And I just have no idea. Yeah, and, I just have no idea. And with with the Republican side, there's no reason to think anything different than the Democrat side. That that McCain, John McCain, could be a socialist nightmare too. <laughs> yeah, it's again. I think there's some reason to think that it's unlikely that McCain would go as far to the left as Obama might. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's other there's other question marks over the McCain candidacy, which really have me very concerned. I, I really would have preferred to have a different set of candidates, honestly, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Right. I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way, especially because it's a very, very frightening time. Two wars and the most serious economic crisis since the Great Depression. You really want to have a sense that you've got someone with a considered, coherent philosophy at the helm who is treating the crisis like an adult and speaking to the American people like an adult, as if they are adults, and I don't get that sense. 
Now, it was very interesting what you said about Thatcher, about the, the strike uh, that they had there, and how close Britain came to civil war. It's an extraordinary story. Let's talk about that for a minute. Tell us the story and, and how, how it came out, how it was resolved at the time, and what Thatcher did specifically that made it come out okay for Britain. You know, the story is so gripping, it could be fiction. It really is. Uh, and originally, I wanted to write a whole book about it. And I was told by my publisher, you can't write a whole book about the 1984 minor strike. You've got to broaden this to make a story about Thatcher's achievements generally. But I found myself absolutely fascinated by this story because to this day, in Britain, Thatcher is really seen as the villain of this story um, in, well, in, in many, many quarters. She's seen as someone who crushed, who cruelly crushed the, the coal miners and destroyed villages and communities. Um, and she hasn't been forgiven for that. And the more I looked into the story, the more I felt this was a profoundly unfair way of looking at it. And of course, I was, I was inclined to sympathies to Thatcher from prejudice from, from the beginning. But the more I looked into it, the more I saw that my instincts on this were, were really right. The story is a very complicated one, but it comes down basically to this. The coal miners were an extremely powerful, the most powerful trade union in Britain. They were the vanguard of the trade union movement because they supplied energy to Britain throughout the Industrial Revolution and the two world wars. So you really have to think of, of the coal miners' union as being kind of, the, kind of like OPEC. And the coal, the coal miners union had always historically been in the hands of trade unionists who we would consider socialists, but who were not so far to the left that we would consider them communists or Stalinists. Mm-hmm. That changed when Arthur Scargill became the head of the mine workers union. Now, Arthur Scargill, another fascinating character, one of the great orators in the history of the left, really was a Stalinist. And I think this is very obvious from his, his, his speeches. As recently as 2001, or maybe 2000, I believe, he gave a speech at the British Stalin Society. Such a thing does exist, and praising comrade Stalin. He was really genuinely interested in bringing about a revolution in Britain, a communist revolution, making himself the the head of the People's Republic of Britain, right? Um, the, The Workers' Republic of Britain. And the thing that is astonishing is that he was very close. And Thatcher recognized the danger that he posed, and when everyone around her was saying, you cannot take on the mine workers, they're just too powerful, they will bring you down, they will bring this country to a halt, they have the power to do it, they control the energy, I mean, what do you do if they turn the lights out? She said, basically, I don't believe in this defeatism, we have to, we have to take them on because if we don't, we are going to be held hostage to the trade union movement, to the manic caprices of this of this man who wants to see a communist revolution in Britain, as she correctly describes Grogo as the enemy within and she was widely pilloried for that statement because it was seen as paranoid. Mm-hmm. She wasn't paranoid. He was the enemy within. He really was. And she um, planned every aspect of the battle with extraordinary care and precision. It's fascinating to study if you're interested in military history. The, the, the plans that were made for stockpiling coal, and this is very tricky because uh, stockpiled coal, it can self-ignite. Um, the plans for importing electricity via cable from France. The plans for going nuclear. The plans for flying for smuggling spare parts into the power plants in the event of a long strike so that they could withstand a long strike. All of this was put into place ahead of time. And then, very interestingly, she did not try to bait Scargill into a strike. That's just false. Her energy secretary, Peter Walker, made an extremely reasonable offer to the mine, mine workers, one that they would, they would certainly have accepted if Scargill had allowed them to vote on it. Scargill didn't. He didn't put the matter to a vote. And this is very interesting in the context of 
trade union legislation that's now being debated in the United States, the Employee Free Choice Act. This is one reason I feel so strongly about this. Scargill intimidated the, the miners who did not want to strike by force. He sent flying pickets, which are basically um, guerrilla brigands of miners to intimidate them, and forced the miners into striking even when the majority, the vast majority, the you know, majorities of 70 or 80% did not want to strike. And Thatcher stood up for this, to this. She stood up to it for an entire year um, as all of Britain waited to see who would break first. It was a tr- terrible, terrible year. Uh, it filled a terrible hardship both for the miners and for everyone who was, who was affected by the strike. And in the end, she won. In the end, she wore them down because she had planned so meticulously, because every aspect of the government's response had been planned in advance, and they had enough coal to last out the winter, two winters, in fact. Hmm. The story is, is really extraordinary in a lot of ways. I don't think people realize what a turning point this was, because it was the end of revolutionary socialism in Britain. It was the end of a trade union movement that worked at fundamentally different purposes from the interests of the British people and their economy. And it was the turning point for, for Britain's economic recovery. It's the point at which Britain was launched on the path that has led to it becoming the wealthiest and most powerful nation in Europe. I do want to bring up the point about the secret ballot and about Scargill's having intimidated the members of the miners' union to going on a strike that deep down they knew was not in their interest, that was disastrous for the British economy, disastrous for the future of their industry. I find it interesting that there's been so little discussion of the Employee Free Choice Act in, in this election, but if there is a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, that, that is going to become law. And what does the Act propose? The Act proposes removing the employer's right to ask for a secret ballot on the question of whether employees wish to become members of a trade union. I don't see what the point of this legislation is except to enlarge the power of unions and to allow them to intimidate their own members. Do you? No, that's a good point. I think as a person who was a union member at one time, the intimidation factor uh, when you're in a strike, and I've been in a strike before, is could be huge if you were put in that position. Nobody wants to be excoriated by their colleagues. Absolutely. And this is well known. Again, I have this feeling of who are they trying to fool? Because this legislation, it it's perfectly clear to me. The only reason you do away with secret ballots is because you think you can't win them. Yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, the intimidation comes from the organizers who mm-hmm. get everybody to say, oh, you got to be with this, and if you're not, you're a strike breaker. Now, I'm not anti-union. I think there's a place for unions, although I, I am anti-unrestricted trade union power, and I'm certainly anti-union coercion because I do think unions have a history, a long-storied history of using intimidation and coercion to make people behave in ways that they don't believe are basically in their interests. So I'm, I'm totally against the idea of getting rid of a secret ballot. Especially when we're headed into, I know this from talking to economists and, and brokers and people from Wall Street, we are headed into another depression. Uh, I, I don't like to be negative about that, but um, already you can see it here. The effects in the country are clear. People know what's happening. We know what we're, we're heading. We just don't know how long it's going to last. And we know that if we if we have a situation where people are, are put into uh, what they see as desperate straits and they're fighting for their economic rights, uh, we could have intimidation being used. And uh, this is not good for the country. If Britain almost went to civil war uh, back in the 1980s, the United States could be put through a similar crisis through similar means. Uh, with me is my guest, Claire Berlinski. 
She's uh, on the phone with us from Turkey. We're talking about her book on Margaret Thatcher, There's No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. And I'm Jeff Nyquist, and we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. back. I'm Jeff Nyquist, Outside the Box, and with me is my guest, Claire Berlinski. She's uh, on the phone with us from Turkey. We're talking about her book, There's No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. We were just talking about the strike that uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, broke. And, and this strike is in Britain was much more dramatic than the air traffic controller strike that we had here in this country that, that Reagan broke, that sort of paved the way for him. It seems like this country, the United States, everything is, has been easier for us in recent times, but we are headed into something where, where it's not going to be easier for us. And, and the kind of leadership that, uh, um, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was not only brilliant, but she was tough. She was unbelievably tough. And this is the thing that I found just fascinating, studying her personalities. You know, I, I, I was sitting here alone working on this book with pictures of her on my desk and, and documents from her archives and surrounded by Margaret Thatcher's personality for a couple of years working on the book. And this is the feeling that I overwhelmingly came away with was that she was not like you and not like me. She was simply tougher. And I kept asking myself, where does this kind of toughness come from? She was born in an undistinguished little town in the Midlands. Nothing in her background would lead you to believe that this girl and then this woman who who no one saw as a pers- as a prospective great leader would become the Iron Lady who, who who won the Cold War along with Reagan, who transformed, who reversed the trajectory of Britain's terminal decline, who stood up to every enemy in the Falklands at home with this lion heart. Where does that come from? I don't know. I never answered the question to my own satisfaction. I've never spoken to anyone who has answered the question to my satisfaction. Where does this kind of thing come from? I mean, people use phrase like a lightning strike, a, a Damascene conversion. They, no one understands where this toughness came from, but my goodness, she was tough. My goodness, she was tough. And brilliant, because, you know, when you are right, the problem that a lot of people who are right have is that they, they, they're not tough enough to hold to their guns. And she held to hers. And you know what? Even retrospectively, even the thing that she, she basically went down over, uh, she's, she's being proven right right now about that. About Europe. Yes. I mean, that, that's really remarkable because she was considered insane at the time for warning that Europe was going to become a bureaucratic super state, that, this was, that the European project was going to turn into an effort to promote socialism through the back door, that there was going to be a loss of national sovereignty. And she was, she was proven right in every single particular. She warned famously 20 years ago in a famous speech at Bruges that the original modest ambitions of the European economic community, which were the original ambitions of the Treaty of Rome, to have a kind of a, cust- a, a borderless customs union, uh, to have a free trade area, that this was being supplanted by a larger goal of a European superstate where individual nations' personalities and sovereignty and traditions would be eclipsed. She was laughed at. They thought she was insane. And it was, as you point out, the issue 
over which she really went down. That was really what prompted the rebellion, the flight of the conservative party, and prompted them to, to get rid of her. And 20 years later, you can look over each line of that, that speech and say, yeah, she was right about that. Yeah, she was right about that. Yeah, she was right about that. You know, this is uh, 700,000 words worth of, of, of edicts and regulations coming out of Brussels every year or 700,000 pages coming out of, out, of, out, of, out of Brussels every year. And the incredible amount of bureaucratic overlay on the, on the European economy, the collective European economy, the way that it stifles enterprise, the way that it's driving venture capital away, and the degree of, of public resentment of all these edicts and petty directives coming out of Brussels by, made by people who are not accountable to the electorate in any way. They're not, they're not being elected by, by the people of Ireland who just, who just resoundingly said, no, they don't want this. They're not being elected by the people of France who voted no on the European Constitution. People hate it, and they don't want it, and yet it's being shoved down their throats. Yeah, and again, it goes down to her vision, her wisdom, her ability to penetrate into what a thing means in practice and what it will bring about in the end. And I, you probably, uh, in your education, run across Irving Janice's uh, Victims of Groupthink. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and, and it occurs to me again and again, this groupthink thing. I mean, it hit Wall Street. It hits Washington all the time. The fiascos, every fiasco, it's a groupthink thing. It's like everybody around Thatcher thought, well, the European Union is the way, and we have to go this way, and there's no real alternative, and you're just a reactionary if you go against it, and, and you're insane, as you say. Well, and it's interesting the toughness, the strength to stand up to that and say, well, wait a minute, let's think about this. Let's not be carried away. Let's not become part of the herd. Let's maintain our independence. So she had tremendous independence that she could not be bullied. Peer pressure didn't have any effect on her. Yes, that's absolutely right. She never went with the herd. If she thought something was wrong, she was. you could not persuade her that it was right. You could persuade her by argument. You could persuade her by presenting better evidence. You could not persuade her by saying everyone else is saying this. You're the only one who's saying something different. That was not something that remotely mattered to her. Moral courage. It's not true that she couldn't be persuaded otherwise if you had a better argument. She enjoyed hearing other arguments. If you had a better argument, she would change her mind. But you are saying something which is in effect very similar to what I've said in the conclusion of my book. I, I asked the question, why does she matter? And my answer is it's twofold. I think the political figures who matter have two rare gifts. They are able to perceive the direction of history in a way their contemporaries are unable to do. Um, and by this I mean they're able to sense the big picture. So, for example, Lenin is a significant historical figure. He matters because he was able to discern a convergence of trends in Tsarist Russia. He was able to see the migration of the peasants and the rise of revolutionary consciousness and the weakness of the Tsarist government, the debilitation inflicted upon Russia by the First World War. All of this added up to something. It added up to something huge, that the, the old order could be toppled, not just reformed, but destroyed. So I mean, Lenin was able to sense the big picture. Obviously, I'm not saying that, that I, I find this admirable. I'm saying that he had that gift. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that when they do perceive the big picture, they are able to master these historical forces. That's the two things, those are the two things that, that distinguish the historical figures who matter. So someone like, for example, Chiang Kai-shek in, in China was able to see with tragic clarity where things were going, but he was not able to master the historical forces. He was not able to triumph. Thatcher, on the other hand, was able to both sense and to master these historical forces. Churchill was able to sense and to master these historical forces. And I don't get the sense that 
the candidates in either party, I don't get the sense that either candidate has a sense of where history is, is going or a plan for mastering it. I hope I'm wrong. I hope whoever wins is actually much more in control of things than they are appearing to be now. I mean, we can, we can hope. Yeah, we can hope. It, it seems that uh, intellectual integrity, moral courage, and vision is, is sort of what you're describing in, in a leader. Yes, intellectual integrity, moral courage, and vision. Those are three qualities which sort of add up to the same two points, I guess. Historical vision is, is important. The ability to sense what the direction of history is, what's going on right then, uh, which Thatcher had in spades. She saw and she was able to see that Britain was at a moment where socialism could be reversed and that it would take only one leader of a singularly exceptional will to reverse it, that she was in a position to do it. Hmm. With me is Claire Berlinski. Her book, There is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters, and we'll be back with more after these messages. Outside the box with Jeff Nyquist. We're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist. Outside the box, and with me is Claire Berlinski. She's uh, on the phone with us from Turkey. We're talking about her new book, There Is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. And, of course, uh, we've got in the presidential election today, we've got uh, a, a lady conservative candidate, the vice presidential candidate, uh, Alaska Governor uh, Palin. And uh, she's, she created a, quite a, con- a sensation here in the United States. And she, she's got a sure-footedness about the way she speaks. She's got a kind of charm. She's got a kind of female force that works in politics. And um, let's talk about the differences between herself and, and Thatcher. And one difference I will say that, that I see is that she doesn't have the intellectual depth of Margaret Thatcher. Not whatsoever. This is something that I... I find very, very striking because people are often comparing her to Margaret Thatcher, and I'm thinking beyond they're both being women with strong opinions and uh, a certain political charisma. Where where does the comparison come from? Because one thing everyone will acknowledge about Thatcher is that she was prepared. She was in command of every single statistic, every single fact, every single argument. She was she was the master of her brief. She was never unprepared for debate, never never even remotely in danger of, of being asked a question she couldn't answer. It just didn't happen. She was she was superb at in Prime Minister's questions times, absolutely demolishing her opponents. She had an encyclopedic memory of statistics. Um, and the one thing that Palin very clearly isn't is prepared in that way. And it's it's almost defining. She's always flustered when asked a difficult question. She always seems as if she's been put on the spot. She very often suggests that she has no clue what the questioner is even asking, no less what the answer might be. She doesn't answer the questions directly. I like some things about Palin. Um, I, I do think she's charming. Uh, or, or the first few times she seems charming. But to suggest that she's in the, even fit to shine Margaret Thatcher's shoes, I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. She's ridiculous. She's just not prepared in the way Thatcher was. And don't forget that Thatcher had a 20-year parliamentary career before becoming the leader of the Conservative Party and was an extremely experienced politician at the national level who had weighed in on every subject of relevance to, to Britain's 
past, present, and future. And, and Palin is more or less an unknown. Um, so I, I don't see what the comparison is. Now, getting back to uh, what I had said before about an intellectual decay, um, Margaret Thatcher had this amazing mind. Uh, what do you know, what do we know about her education? What she read, what influenced her? You mentioned Friedrich Hayek. Oh, I, I know a lot about her education. Um, she went to, you know, in Britain, a public school is what we would call a private school. An elite private school is called a public school. She went to what we would call a public school, a grammar school. So she she had absolutely no privileged background. She was just a very, very hardworking student, quite bright, and through her own hard work and discipline, she got a place at Oxford University where she studied chemistry. She did not take a first-class degree. She took a second-class degree, which some people suggested is, is a sign that she was not really all that quick-witted, but I would point out that she subsequently took a law degree in two years while campaigning for a seat in Parliament. This is in her early 20s. While pregnant with twins and passed the bar exam six weeks after giving birth to twins, you can't do that if you're not a very, very sharp woman. Um, in terms of her intellectual influences, I, I think that she was a very good synthesizer. She was... Um, she was very well briefed. I think a lot of her intellectual influences came to her through her mentor, Keith Joseph, who was uh, a student of, of Hayek and Milton. Um, I think the main thing is she had intellectual influences. Uh, I, you know, she was the kind of person of whom it could be said that she had intellectual influences. I don't know if, if you asked Sarah Palin, who are your intellectual influences? I don't know what she would say. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe she has an answer, but... I just don't get the feeling from anything I've heard from her that she's someone for whom the concept of an intellectual influence is relevant. And I think this comes back to what you're saying about being a coarsening of... There's there's an anti-intellectualism represented by someone like Palin, which I find very disturbing. I don't think anti-intellectualism is a desirable quality in a political candidate. Anti-elitism is a different matter. But intellectualism and unwillingness to engage seriously with the history of ideas and to think about which ones were good ones and which ones have stood up to the test of time and why is not a proper grounding for someone in high office. You need to have ideas. And and what's interesting about, uh, and of course Thatcher being a master of detail and Reagan not being, and I want to discuss that a little bit in, in a moment, uh, some letters were, were published a few years ago of Reagan's, and people were reading this, and of course the whole idea that Reagan was stupid, that Reagan didn't know anything, people read those and go, my goodness, he's a, gr- he's a good writer. My goodness, he has deep thoughts. Uh, you know, he really had intellectual curiosity. He really read things. Um, and, and you could tell, I remember when I was a college student hearing some of his talks, thinking, you know, he's really very carefully thought things through, um, Ronald Reagan. And of course, uh, perhaps the weakness of Reagan's presidency, perhaps why in some respects he failed, was that he wasn't hands-on. He didn't like the details, and Margaret mm-hmm. Thatcher did. But in this intellectual thing, uh, where people go to ideas, uh, the Austrians, to me, the Austrian economists are important because it was Hayek and Ludwig von Mises who predicted the Great Depression, who predicted the stock market crash in 29. Of course the Austrian economists are important. And even if you 
disagree with them. You have to have read them to disagree with them intelligently. You yes. have to know what you're disagreeing with. Yeah. No, no philosophy or no writer is perfect, but there are, are things in philosophy and economics and political science, there are things that are sort of classics that are that inform you in ways that you cannot possibly make up in any other way. And that someone like Margaret Thatcher and, and, and Ronald Reagan, to a lesser extent, had that and, and that was part of their leadership, the fact that they understood things about our civilization and about our economics that their colleagues didn't, that their colleagues seemed wishy-washy about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just wondering, in this context, when we, when we talk about the, the future leadership of the United States, the future leadership of Europe, is there anybody that you see out there that, that shows any of these qualities that, that Thatcher had? Is there anyone out there that shows these qualities that Thatcher had? I can't say I was tremendously impressed by any of the candidates in the primaries for either party. Honestly, no, but that doesn't mean they're not out there. Because remember, I'm not living in the U.S. There might be a lot of a lot of important people who I'm not aware of. What about you? What do you think? I can't think of anybody. And I think of Neil Postman, and I think of what he said, that we had a literate culture at one time, and now we have a TV culture, and it's all about pictures, not about the words and the ideas. And we are less and less able to master the ideas. And further and further away from the ideas on which civilization depends, our civilization is in danger of crumbling. Yeah, I, I often think that, and then I wonder... Am I just repeating the lament that everyone always has about the, the younger generation? Is, is it not just classic that everyone always says the next generation is illiterate and uncouth and crude and crass and can't be trusted? Because that is, that is an eternal lament. It seems that way to me, but I also realize I could just be indulging in the prejudice that every generation has about the next generation. But, of course, we've had a technological revolution uh, when you find that, uh, as Neil Postman did, that... Um, that college students cannot understand the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and we realize that it was farmers and shopkeepers, just average people, that flocked from all around Illinois to hear those debates. What makes you say that college students can't understand the Lincoln-Douglas debates? Well, that was his assertion, that, that the language and the, some of the concepts were he found that in college students were not able to understand it. And, of course, if you've taught college recently in an American university, you find a lot of people yeah. in there that shouldn't be there. Yeah, yeah. And per- perhaps the sentiment of Bill Clinton saying everyone should have a college education has cheapened that. and that. Uh, well, you know, I don't think it's that shocking that college students would not understand the Lincoln-Douglas debates at first reading. I mean, part of what they're in college to learn is how to understand the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Mm-hmm. And they need to understand the context of the debate over Kansas. They need to understand. It's not totally shocking to me. They wouldn't understand it by themselves. If they couldn't understand it after being taught in a good class, that would be more disturbing. But, right. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know which one he's asserting. No, I think he, not that after they were in a good class they couldn't, but I, I think what he's asserting that these farmers and these people that came around, they could come and hear the language. I think he was talking more about the language, and what he meant is is the way they used words were, was pretty sophisticated. Yeah. And we don't use those words. Hey, those are big words. Oh, I'm not sure what that means. I have to go to my dictionary. Uh, we don't have the vocabulary we used to have, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we don't have the sophistication because we don't spend enough time with books, with good books. We spend an awful lot of time with media. Yeah. And I don't know whether there's not some advantages to that as well as disadvantages. I mean, the dissemination of of media through the Internet, it offers a lot to a democracy in terms of of being able to offer 
a plethora of sources and a very vivid conversation and instant fact-checking, all of this. I don't know whether people are generally becoming better informed or less well-informed because of the proliferation of the new media. I, I really, it's an empirical question. I don't know what the answer mm-hmm. is. Um, Maybe it's a matter of quality rather than quantity. There's a lot of quality writing out there. I just don't know whether people are reading it and thinking about it in the right way. I just don't know. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you're you're there, so yeah. you, could, you could probably answer the question better than I could. Uh, about Margaret Thatcher, um, we know that there was a quality in her thinking, and 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 a quality that it w- enabled her to see things and to go forward with things, and and to persevere. So, what is the message that we take away now? in this current crisis, what is it that she knew that if we could go back and study her, that we need to know now? What would Margaret Thatcher do in this crisis? Mm-hmm. Is that the question? And uh, what would she you know, say? I've been asking myself that since the first news began to cross over the Internet trends, and what, what would she do about this? And I think that the idea that she would have just said, well, we can't do anything, just hands off, just let the market sort themselves out, is probably not right, because that's that's... She was not actually a proponent of a complete lack of government intervention. In fact, contrary to popular belief, she actually promoted much more stringent bank regulation than had been in place before. I can't imagine that she would have presided over spending $700 billion of public money without a much clearer sense, one that she could communicate to us about what that money was supposed to do, because she was a planner. She did not do anything without working out the plans like mad in advance. She would get everyone's opinion. She would look for any possible problems with the plan. Um, I can't imagine her simply saying, we just have to throw money at this and hope for the best. If she were convinced that money needed to be spent on this to prevent total economic meltdown, you better believe she would have been able to explain why, why that was necessary. I can't imagine her being enthusiastic about the idea of creating the kind of moral hazard that is created by bailing out banks. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems absolutely antithetical to everything she believed in about people needing to take responsibility for their blunders. Um, it's easy to say in retrospect. It wouldn't have happened had she been in power. But I have a feeling that the whole question of these complex, opaque financial instruments would have come under more scrutiny if she had been in power because it seems to me that in- instinctively she would have been very suspicious of that. She was often criticized for having a housewife's view of the economy, an excessively commonsensical view of the economy. But I think I think that would have been a virtue here. She would have looked at these kinds of financial instruments and said, hey, wait a second, this mm-hmm. is not common sense. They're not based on anything. There's no collateral here. Um, people are getting mortgages even though they can't afford them. This, this does not look right. I think she would have smelled that something was foul there. It's easy to say that. Again. You can't prove a negative, but I do think she would have. What's interesting is, is that the great leader... Uh, theory of history that we really depend on great leaders. We really need them. That they are the people that get us through crises. That that allow turning points to take place. I mean, this 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 really seems apparent now, right at this juncture, doesn't it? That we need someone like this, and we don't have someone like this. And if you have someone like this, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, it does. Now, I should say that no one expected when Margaret Thatcher took power that she was going to be the leader she was. There was no widespread belief that she was going to be the woman who transformed Britain, no understanding of just what a powerful personality she was. So it's hard to say. Power can bring out qualities in people that we didn't know they had. There can be people who are 
lucky enough to find himself in that position but completely unable to capitalize on it. So it's not very helpful for me to say, I just don't know what's going to happen, but it's, it's the truth that I just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Claire Berlinski, the author of There Is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. Any final comments for our listeners? Yeah, I do have a couple of final comments. I think it's it's very important in... I, I'm not going to tell people how to vote, um, and I think this is going to air after the election anyway. No, no, it's going to be... We're on on a Sunday before the election and a Tuesday election night. I I don't... I hope that people will consider when casting their vote that there are certain principles. This shouldn't be a vote about personality. It should be a vote about certain principles, because I think that's what Margaret Thatcher would have said, that the underlying principles have to be sound. And as for which candidate is adheres more to principles that are in line with Margaret Thatcher's. I think you could you could make arguments on either side, but I think that um, the unknown with Obama is very, very big, and there's a real possibility of a massive leftward swing, which I do not think would be helpful right now. So um, I'm going to give a qualified endorsement for McCain on the air right now. <laughs> okay, very good. Very good. Well, on, on behalf of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> on behalf of Margaret Thatcher, because she would yeah. have done the same thing. Well, I want to I thank so. I want to thank you, Claire, uh, for being with us, our guest on the show, and I hope your thank book you. sells like hotcakes. Thanks so much. It was really a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, what I like to say about the election is that when you go out to vote, be sure to think, use your common sense, but also think about the future of your country. Think about your children and your grandchildren. What kind of country do you want them to inherit from you? I am Jeff Nyquist. I want to thank you for being with us in this special edition of Outside the Box. And uh, and don't forget, visit my website, jrnyquist.com. That's J-R-N-Y-Q-U-I-S-T dot com. And I hope you will join us next week at this same time. Until then, be well and God bless. <laughs>